What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, March 28th, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 211. Trying to cram 26 people around a table that fits 10. My name is Caleb Hag. And with me, from a home that smells so much of incense, we can smell it from the other side of the mountains, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, man? It's going very well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it Passover. does. I was in the garage this morning. It reeked like incense. <laughs> You got to tell people now. Good, you got to tell people. A good now. friend come over and and who does uh, like stellar photography, and he's like, "Hey, let's use your garage and we'll do some cool photography of of smoke going up like incense." So I had to go to the store. We got like I'm looking at the incense section. This is like the part of the store that I always walk by. I never go at like at the natural food store. I know they have like this hippie section with like different kinds of soaps and I'm like if anybody's going to have incense they have it so I go there and they have like 20 kinds of incense I'm like I don't know what to buy so I just asked the lady working there I'm like you know I just need a big like Nog Champa man Nog Champa well I don't know what that is so anyway I just grabbed one of them and uh, anyway it (laughs) was just like we're just like woo we had to open up, let that air out a little bit, but uh, hopefully we got some good uh, good pictures. Smoke does, I mean, it's really cool. The idea is you're blocking it off, right, uh, so that there's uh, not a lot of draft, so that right. the smoke can go up, and then getting uh, real high res, uh, well lit pictures of the smoke, and you can zoom in and you can see little little particles that are sw- swirl, uh, spiraling up with the smoke embers or whatever anyway uh anyway that that's why the incense joke was there that's why the incense not, joke was there you're right we were we were not there was no religious significance <laughs> given any of that dude passover is two days away friday is nissan 14 very excited um are you ready more errands today, more things to do today. To but we've we've done cleaning and uh, various. How many are you having people over to your house, or do you have a we're gonna a have community, people over here? A community yeah, we're people here. We uh, the last several years we've encouraged people to have their own home uh, seders, which is right. really cool because that way it's uh, uh, it it uh, forces people maybe to 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 do a Seder and kind of go through that learning experience, which I think is really important. Excellent. And, uh, and it's good cause you have the more intimacy, you know, you have the smaller groups is, is good. How many people are you have? 
don't know yet. What do you mean I you know, don't know wife, yet? My wife's like, we need to know by today. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, we have and we have uh, unsures. Our so. table um, is. We start planning the guests list about two weeks after Passover ends. So, in about three wow. weeks, in about three weeks, we will um, begin preparation for Passover 2019. Uh, how many people are you having? In, including children, 26. At your place? At my house. Wow. That's great, man. For those who don't know, I don't make a lot of money, and my house is really quite small. So 26 people crammed into my house, it's it's a lot. And people pro- will probably end up uh, sleeping in various rooms. Uh, yeah. It's, it, it's a... Uh, it's a big ordeal. We we definitely have fun. We we um we decided to to turn my backyard into a roasting pit. Hmm. Um, oh, and, so it is an it is an altar. Uh, no, <laughs> that someone. Saw but we did get a whole lamb, and uh, my buddy, who is the probably the best barbecuer on the West Coast, um, he's he's going to be uh, doing the lamb, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, we got people coming from Montana, as we always do. Our good friend Adam and uh, his wife Mary and their daughter Yofi are coming to stay with us. And we always have a uh, we always have a farewell to Levin. They always come over the day before, and uh, we go to BJ's for uh, which is a which is a pizza joint. It's a chain, and uh, we we get the deep dish. It's going to be excellent. All right. Um, well. Happy Passover to everybody. Welcome to everyone in the chat room. Good to see you in there. This is Messiah Matters. <coughs> Pardon me. Messiah Matters is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to Torah Resource for all of your um, re- Torah resource needs. <laughs> for all your Torah, yeah. <laughs> Torah Resource exists to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. You can find all sorts of free stuff and, and great um, great resources to study the Bible. We have commentaries. We have articles. There's a ton of free stuff. It's amazing to me every time we uh, I look on the site. Again, it uh, it reminds me how much stuff we have. Uh, it's, it's quite unbelievable. And whether you're on our mailing list or not, we have a uh, promotion every, every all, going all the time <clears throat> where you can get something free just by signing up uh, on our mailing list. And we just decided today there's a couple of, uh, there's going to be four audio um, audio lectures that uh, you can download for free uh, by signing up to be on the mailing list. And if, uh, if you're already signed up, don't worry, you'll get, uh, you'll get free links to them as well. But um, basically, it's uh, all four lectures are on identity. So Jews and Gentiles in the Body of the Messiah is one of them, identity and one Torah. Uh, there's two lectures on that. And uh, so on and so forth. So anyway, uh, keep your eyes open on the website for for that uh, promotion. It's it's always a good one. Um, and then also, once again, and I didn't make a banner. I apologize. I feel like a slacker to our sponsor today. Chava Messianic Radio is uh, sponsoring uh, show two one one. We are very grateful to Judah over at Chava Messianic Radio for his support of this show. Um, I want to let you know this. Chava Messianic Radio just got an app, and you can get the app for iPhone, for Android, and for Windows phones. 
And so uh, I would highly recommend it because that way on the go, you can listen to all of your favorite Messianic music. And uh, actually, I found some good music just the other day on Chava Messianic Radio. So it's, uh, you know, they have everything. Um, if you want, uh, I don't know, if you want like me- Messianic bluegrass, you can find it at Chava Messianic Radio. I guarantee it. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, download it, listen to it in the car while you're working out, whatever it may be. Um, and also, last but certainly not least, Messiah Matters is brought to you by the generous support of our listeners. And uh, this show, believe it or not, this blows my mind every time I say it, this show is listened to by thousands of people around the world every single week, which just is mind-boggling to me. Um, but it is, I apologize, I start. I forgot to start the radio broadcast, which, <laughs> oh well. Um, so Messiah Matters is, is brought to you um, by our listeners. And uh, if you want to become a supporter of Messiah Matters, you can do so uh, for as little as $5 a month. That's right, $5 a month. Uh, you can set up a reoccurring $5 a month support for uh, Messiah Matters. Um, you can do that by going to TorahResource.com, then cl- uh, hovering over Radio, and then click on Messiah Matters. And as soon as you get to that page, over on the right-hand side, there's a button you can click to become a $5 a month supporter of Messiah Matters. Every single penny counts uh, to keep these microphones on and to keep this a free resource for people all around the world. Okay, with all of that said, let's jump right into it. And by the way, I should say, we have already had several people sign up to be uh, monthly supporters of this show, and we uh, we are blown away and just beyond grateful for uh, the people who have who've decided to, uh, to help uh, get this show on the air every single week. And so we really, really do appreciate it. Okay. Last week, I said something. Uh, and a, a brother in the Lord at my at the congregation I go to uh, gave me a what for on uh, on on my comment, um, and it was in reference to First Corinthians eleven. I said that I thought that uh, this letter was talking um, predominantly about the Passover meal in the diaspora. Now this this is largely opposed by most scholarship. I know this. I get it. Um, and of course, most Christian scholarship is going to say, no, they, they already thought the law was done away with. They were instituting a Eucharist. Um, okay, well, th- that's a whole different matter. But what I said was in 1 Corinthians 11, I thought that Paul was saying you shouldn't have unbelievers at your Passover meal. This brother in the Lord uh, basically gave me a nice reaming out and said, hey, man, you know, some of us have uh, situations where... Um, that is really a difficult thing because we have a wife who is a believer and a husband who's an unbeliever. So what do we do? Tell the wife she shouldn't bring her husband, um, these kind of things. Um, and then he also made a very interesting insight into 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 34, which we will read in just a second. I want to speak for just a moment about... Um, the idea that uh, we should split up a couple if, if one's an unbeliever. Um, I think that, first of all, this ultimately comes down to each person and uh, the person hosting the Passover Seder. You know, there's a group in, in Tacoma, and they have, like, a, it's something ridiculous, like 6,000-person Seder every, th- every single year. Um, and obviously, you're going to have unbelievers uh, that wow. would come to that. Is there something wrong with that? 
I don't think so. And certainly, I think that um, you know, Paul talks about in this same letter. He talks about how um, a a you know, if a, there's a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, and uh, you know, she sanctifies the husband. These kind of things. Okay, um, so I think that obviously we should not be um, breaking up couples. Um, but here's the insight. Do you have anything to say about this before uh, before no. we read this? Okay, I want to read this entire passage because uh, I think it's worthwhile to do so. Um, and it says, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 34. I'm reading out of the NASB. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord, Yeshua, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a second. We've talked in the in the past couple of shows about 1 Corinthians and whether or not um, this is instituting something new or whether or not it's uh, talking about a, uh, a Passover meal. I believe that it is talking about a Passover meal. That's neither here nor there at this point. Let's pretend for all those who disagree with me on this, let's just pretend for a few seconds that it is talking about a Passover meal and go on. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and dr- or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many young among you are weak and sick and a number, uh, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so on and so forth. Okay. The observation that this uh, brother in the Lord made to me was that uh, Paul does not say, examine other people to see if they should be at your Passover meal, but examine yourself. In other words, this is an inward looking, we we need to be right with the Lord ourselves and not to judge what the other person is. Now, this is a really good point. And the reason why is because if you look in the beginning of 1 Corinthians and the uh, sexual immorality that is going on, among the Corinthians. I don't know if there's, I mean, there's probably some liberal churches today, but most conservative churches and, uh, can, you know, uh, uh, even Messianic congregations that are uh, conservative in belief, that is, um, I think would probably not only excommunicate, not only kick somebody out or tell them they shouldn't come if they were uh, engaged in the same sexual immorality as the Corinthians, but they'd probably excommunicate them. Yet Paul seems to um, seems to say, I mean, it's very odd how he kind of deals with this, and uh, you know, tries to get them to uh, to see the light, uh, so to say. So once again, now we get to this passage, and he says to examine yourself. I think this is a, a good point, and I I think that I have to uh, retract what I would say. Uh, if what someone's I, willing to come, like like you have a, a married couple, right. One of the one of the spice is believer, and the other is not. They can, uh, if they're willing to come, right? If they if if they're there, then that represents the unity of the couple, right? And and 
So, yeah, that's a that's there's a, there's a also theory. other situations where you know somebody has uh, what I would call the sin of the high hand. In other words, they say that they believe they uh, they walk according to um, you know they, they well <laughs> they say that they believe they go to a congregation and so on and so forth, but their life is not exemplary of you know they're living in sin and are not repentant of said sin. Um, should this person be at the Passover meal? Once again, we get into husband and wife. Maybe the you know maybe the uh, the wife is living in sin, the the husband is not. And when I say living in sin, this could mean a, a slew of different things. It's not one specific sin, or right. vice versa. You know, um, mm-hmm. husband is is living in sin and and uh, claims to be a believer, but the wife uh, seems to be genuine and living a life unto God. Um, what do you do in these kind of situations? Once again, I think that this comes down to individual uh, homes, individual co- congregations, leaders, and what um, what a leader would say and and what a leader would uh, you know. Uh, I think it. I think every single situation is different, and I don't think that we can just make blank, blanket statements. And this is about these kind of things. This is exactly why I think that uh, uh, judges are set up within the tribes in the Torah, right? Uh, Moses's father-in-law comes and says, "Look, you're taking on way too much," and this is essentially where the Judaism gets the concept. And I think it's a right. I think it's right. Ask your local rabbi is what is what modern Judaism would say, and what Judaism has said for a very long time. And that what that means is don't ask a you know don't try to ask a governing body or you know look at what the the faith statement of a denomination is. Rather, ask you know. On matters of halakha, that's matters of way that we walk out our faith, ask the the leaders of the congregation you go to, which is why I think it's very important for believers to be in uh, in community. This, I mean, this this topic is, is far-reaching in many ways. So I retract what I said last week, um, and I would rather say I think that 1 Corinthians, my, my buddy here is right, it says to examine yourself, and we should look inward during the time of Passover. And not only should we look inward, but uh, I think that uh, whoever is going to be at your table is up to either the leader of the house um, or the community that uh, is, you know, that you're a part of. Um, you know, in that, I, I was thinking about Judas. Yeah, right. Like, right. In, in, so Yeshua says, you know, I didn't I choose you 12, yet one of you is a devil, right? And Yehuda, to some degree, was part of the Seder. Now, he leaves sometime during the meal right? because he goes and um, organizes with those who are going to come and capture Yeshua in the garden. So, um, but Yeshua didn't exclude him outright. Uh, and, and that's uh, worthy of some thought. I don't have any uh, particular insight to offer from that other than it's just there for us. It confronts us. You know, we're confronted with Yeshua accepting Judas into the Seder with, and presumably washed his feet. Right. Uh, Can you imagine that? You know that you know that the person in front of you is the one who's going to betray you, um, and yet you you still wash his feet. We we have to assume that he washed his feet because his disciples say, "Hey, why'd you wash all of our feet except for Judas?" (laughs) Right. Right. Yeshua did not single Judas out. Until it, uh, it was he. He allowed Judas to follow the path that he was on. You know that he was pursuing. 
So, uh, Eliyahu in the chat room, what's the last separate Passover meal? The answer is yes. Uh, I've done several live streams recently on this. You can go to uh, Torah Research. This is great. Thank you. Uh, this helps me plug uh, various Passover resources that we have. Go to TorahResource.com. Go to the articles section. Well, he says, I don't think so. Well, you're allowed to be wrong, and you are. Um, anyway, uh, go to the chronology of the Passion. Um, obviously, the Synoptic Gospels tell us that it was a Passover. It says that it was the day that the, the Passover lambs were sacrificed. Yeshua tells them to go prepare the Passover. They go prepare the Passover because uh, he wanted to eat it, and then he's sitting down at dinner, and he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. This Pascha. Yeah, this this Pascha, Pascha with you. It's obviously a Passover yeah. meal. And, and if you, it's the slaughtering of the Pascha is there. Right. And uh, if you have a problem with that, then I would encourage you to read the uh, uh, the article, uh, the chronology of the Passion, which can be found. Oh, thank you. Uh, Mike just posted it in the uh, chat room. And uh, if you're not in the chat room right now, if you're listening to this somewhere else, then go to TorahResource.com. There, there is, uh, it's, yeah. Clearly there's a history, there's traction out there that the Yohanin hypothesis having a separate chronology than the the synoptics that has traction out there that's a well-worn road and people are gonna a lot of people are gonna presume that please don't take this the wrong way everyone out there because i know that there are scholars who still hold to a a johanian hypothesis but scholarship is especially in the past 20 years is largely moving away from that um, in fact, I would say with, with Dr. Petrie's work, with uh, some of my father's work, um, and with uh, you know, Joachim Jeremias and others, I think that uh, the, the Johannian hypothesis is starting to fade into the background because, um, because uh, scholarship has made extremely large strides in this, and it all comes down to the language of the, of the Greek language of the, of the Gospels. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, we've, we've talked about this at length. You can actually go to our last Passover special from 2017 and see us interview Dr. Brant Petrie. Uh, and his work on this has been uh, tantamount, I believe, in the, in the scholarly community. Mm-hmm. All that to say, I think, mm-hmm. that, uh, I think that those who still hold to a Johannine hypothesis uh, who are not in the scholarly world probably do so because they are not aware of a lot of the uh, of the the work that's been done in the recent uh, you know in the past twenty years, um, and that's not any fault of of anyone. And you know what? I I admit there's there are people who disagree with me strongly, even though they've heard uh, the the evidence presented. So this is one of those non salvation issues that probably won't get uh, worked out until uh, the Messiah comes back. Um, but hey, whatever it's, you know, actually I will say there was a post I saw on Facebook recently, which was a really good post. And that post basically said, uh, John and the synoptics all say the same thing, that the emphasis should be on redemption, which is true. Uh, it's the redemption that we have through the Messiah issue. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Uh, and if you want to jump into this conversation, please go ahead. Call our comment line 253-465-3205. It's four two. Uh, it's two five three. Four six five thirty two zero five. You don't get. You don't have to talk to anyone. It's just a comment line. It's a message machine. You can yell and rant all you want. You can tell us you're we're wrong, whatever, and you don't have to talk to us. Or you can send us emails if that is uh, more up your alley. C Hag. That's C H E G G at TorahResource.com. dot C at TorahResource.com. You can also email Rob Vanhoff R Vanhoff 
two F's in Van Hoff, rvanhoff at torahresource.com. Okay, with all that said, uh, let's move on quickly. I have to hard stop at 10.30 today. So um, with all that said, I put something in the show notes. And if you don't get the show notes, you should get them. You can get them on our site. Um, but uh, I put something in the show notes. It's, a, it's an article from Torah Resource on the meaning of the word Pascha which is Passover. And um, as the language teacher, uh, Rob, why don't you expound on, I think that a lot of people just means to skip, right? Right. Yeah, this is a good uh, topic for our, you know, meditation for this time of year, coming into Pesach and Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's so much rich meaning um, and significance spiritually for us. One of the one of the things that can sometimes get by us is the word Passover. We just take for granted the word Passover as capturing the name of of this Chag of this feast. And in fact, right. it's Pesach, right in Hebrew, Pesach. And we we first see it in in Exodus twelve, right? Uh, and it's it's used both as a noun. It is Pesach Adonai. It is the Lord's Pesach. And as a noun, but in verse, what, what verse is it? Is it verse 11? Uh, pardon me. I think it's verse 11. He says, Vepasach, uh, This is verse 13. Um, the sign, it, it says the blood will be uh, a sign over your, upon your houses. Um, and it says, Veraiti et hadam. I will see the blood. This is Exodus 12, 13. And I will pasach over you. So, right. so, so there it's a verb. So in Exodus 12, when we're introduced to this verb, we see it as a noun, Pesach la Adonai, a Pesach of Adonai's Pesach. And we see it as a verb, like here in verse 13, I will pasach you, over you. And so we traditionally take this as Passover. I will pass over. So the idea is that like the, the uh, afflicting angel, the angel that's, that's taking away the firstborn is coming through from house to house. And they skip every time they see the blood, they skip over that house. And that's the image that I learned when I was a kid. Right. Um, Passover. Like, oh, no, we're not going into this house. But in fact, if you look at the, the Targumim, and even the Septuagint. So we have in the, the Greek translation of Exodus 13 and in the Aramaic translations, they translate it with the word to protect. I will protect you. And the image is different. The image when we take Pesach as to protect is one of God's wrath right? Coming down basically is the bigger image, but it's, it's the, the angel of death, right? To kill the firstborn is everywhere present. It's coming down equally on every home, but there is a protection over the homes that have the blood. And so the, it, it doesn't get into that house. That house is protected. It's not a matter of a dance of a skip, right? It's a matter of a shielding and a, a covering and a Does protection. It, doesn't don't you think that this uh, directly uh, correlates with the image, like the the courtroom Im imagery that we have 
of Yeshua actually standing up on our behalf and fighting for us. Right. In other words, he's protecting us in the courtroom. Yeah, absolutely. And here's what's interesting is that we know that uh, we've talked about this before. There's good work been done in in the ancient Greek translation of the Torah. They often used well, not often, but in, in key places, they used Aramaic terms to translate Hebrew. In other words, uh, instead of translating the, the Hebrew term into Greek, they use an Aramaic word in its place. And Pascha is one of those. So in other words, the Greek Jews that read the Septuagint, when they get to this word, they preserve the word Pascha, which is Aramaic, not Greek. And what that tells us is that they had an Aramaic strata to their kind of their language infrastructure. They were probably bilingual or trilingual, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, right? Maybe primarily Greek at this time, but they still had tradition associated with Pascha. Pascha is not translated for us by Yeshua or the apostles. It's just taken for granted. But we do see uh, it start to to separate. Some there's one stream that takes it in in later as the church history develops, rabbinic history develops. One stream takes it to mean um, uh, protect, like we have, like we talked about, and one takes it to to skip over. And uh, both are present, for example, in a, in one of the early rabbinic midrashim in in the Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, the uh, the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael, where um, the Mechilta, which is just now granted the texts are late, but it's associated with the second century. Uh, Tanaitic literature, if you want to take a rabbinic literature class and know what that is. But they associated uh, the word Pesach with Isaiah, with the verse from Isaiah 31, where it where the verse, it's used. It says, like flying birds, this is Isaiah 31, 5, like flying birds, so Adonai of hosts will protect Yerushalayim. He will protect and deliver it. He will Pesach and rescue it. So the image here is a, a bird hovering over and protect with wings over Jerusalem, protecting. Right. <clears throat> and so uh, there's a there's a split in the the mid the, the midrash of of the Mechilta. Some take it the first instance is is taken as this protection, and then another voice says no no take it as skip over. And then there's a citation of Song of Solomon where it says. My, uh, the voice of my beloved comes dancing on the hills. And the, the idea is actually a, that there is a, a kind of passing over. So very early, you know, first century and beyond, we do see this split in interpretation. But if you look at the Greek and the Aramaic, it's clear that protection was the dominant meaning, particularly like with Isaiah 31 is a great example, where uh, the verb, has a strong history of meaning protect. And I think, like, just like you pointed out, Caleb, being in Messiah is a locational type of metaphor. Right. Like in Romans 5, Paul says, you know, therefore being justified by faith, we have shalom with God, and we have access through Yeshua to the grace in which we stand. In other words, there's a like a, a positional what they call positional righteousness. It's a metaphor of space, of location. We are in Messiah, and it's his life that we have. We, are, right. we participate in his resurrection, and the only way we participate in his resurrection is if we have died with him. So, And this takes us right back to the imagery of, of Passover. And 
to be in Yeshua is to be basically in um, in a home, right? Wherein the firstborn is is redeemed, is uh, has life, and we participate in that life and we celebrate that life. Um, so anyway, there's a great article. It's pretty. I think it's just a, two pages or so where Tim Haig uh, takes you down some of the the uh, scriptural verses to show the, some history of this verb uh, from where we get Pesach, Pascha, and then popularly uh, Passover. Uh, I have also linked that article in the show notes, um, which I would encourage everyone to receive. You can receive our show notes by going to TorahResource.com, hovering over radio, go to Messiah Matters, and then you can sign up right there for our show notes. Well, if I may, what, one other point is, tar, if, if you look at uh, one of the Targums, because we have more than one Aramaic translation, one of them translates it not as protect, but to have compassion. I will have compassion on you. Interesting. I will have compassion over you. And so the idea is uh, there's a, a, an element of remembering the covenant, of, of remembering that God has a promise here, and that this... Um, uh, this wrath, this punishment on the gods of Egypt and the, the, the wiping away of the firstborn is not going to touch the firstborn of, of the sons of Israel. Right. Okay, great. Let's move on. So um, today's probably going to be a little bit of a shorter show, and the reason why is because I have a hard stop, so it'd be nice to, uh, uh, I have a, a meeting I have to get into at some point soon here. Well, so, can I share what, one other thing? That no, is you're not allowed. Mechilta. <laughs> of course. Go. Um, is that this is pretty early, um, Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, and it takes that same verse, so verse 13 of Exodus 12, where it says, Ra'iti, uh, it says, I will see the blood, right? The Ra'iti, uh, I will see the blood. And what the what the Midrash says there, it says, uh, Mara'a, what did he see? Dam shel Yitzchak, the blood of Isaac. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. But in other words, and the, the tie is in is in First Chronicles too. Remember when when David takes the census, First uh, Chronicles twenty one, and then the the striking angel comes right because he wasn't supposed to take a consensus uh, uh, or a census, not a consensus. Um, but anyway, the, the idea here in the midrash is that. The blood is what is seen, the blood of Isaac. Right. And what is the blood of Isaac? That reminds us that Passover has to do, it's a good midrash. It, it, it reminds us that Passover doesn't just have to do with the children of Israel in slavery, as that God just picked, a, he just saw a suffering people and just thought he should help them out. You know, that's right. not what's going on here. It goes back to a promise to Abraham. Yes. And that is so important because then we have to ask, well, who is Abraham and why did he have a promise? And who is who is the children of Jacob? Where they're the and, they are the and, children through Isaac. And, and what is, Isaac? is the promise? I mean, you know, we've already talked about this in previous shows, but remember that the Abrahamic covenant has to do with the Messiah, and not only is you know uh, the Exodus is totally wrapped up with the firstborn son, and oh, right? and yeah. with circumcision. You can't eat the Passover lamb unless you're yeah. circumcised, right? He uh, Moses. God goes to kill Moses on his way down to Egypt because one of his sons isn't isn't uh, circumcised. His wife has to do it for him, right? So circumcision is wrapped up, and the reason why is because the Abrahamic covenant and the coming of the Messiah, salvation through the Messiah, 
is mm-hmm. 100% uh, wrapped up in the right. Exodus from Egypt. Even Isaac's name was given by God. You shall call his name Yitzchak, right? And he became he he became God's. Right. Right? He became God's. Good. Um, so there's another article that's in the show notes on um, sim- uh, the Last Supper as, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the Passover Haggadah as symposium, which uh, is interesting. And, he- and we don't need to touch on it, but here's one thing that I was thinking. And I'm just going to, I haven't even talked to Rob about this, but let me just bounce this off you. I wonder if we could look at uh, Yeshua's exposition in, at, the, at the Passover meal from John 13 through John, what is it, the end of 17, I think, where he, he all, he's talking at the Passover meal. I wonder if there's any kind of correlation to, to what's in that article. That's why I uh, uh, included that article in the show notes is, is because I thought it was really interesting how there was kind of these set prayers mm. or these set uh, oh, structures. That would be, within you could this. go and, and look through that, yeah. Right. Okay, so that actually will bring us to our next topic. Asher, who has been a wonderful source of topics for this show because he uh, always – tends to ask provoking questions and good questions. And they're, too. they're good questions. They yeah. show deep engagement with, with the topics. And, and he's done his homework in terms of language and right. text history, and, uh, et cetera. He says, I understand from one of the previous shows that drinking of wine at Yeshua's Passover meal was part of the Greek dapnon. And later on, the, and dapnon, for those who have not caught our past shows, dapnon is just the word uh, supper, but within the uh, Greco-Roman banquet, Dapnon was separated from other aspects of the of the supper, like uh, the symposium, which would be the drinking part of the Greco-Roman banquet, or the philosophical talking part of the banquet, um, so on and so forth. So the Dapnon was like the main course meal part. So um, he says, uh, wine, issues, Passover meal, was part of the Greek Dapnon, and later on the rabbis incorporated elements of the Dapnon into the Seder. This is true, at least we, the evidence certainly uh, weighs heavily uh, in this direction. <clears throat> However, he says, Yeshua seems to assign significance to the drinking of the wine. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, he says, is he giving it significance as coming from the Dapnon, or has it already been incorporated into the first century Seder, and then he assigns new meaning to it based on that? So basically, the, here's how, what I'm hearing um, Asher ask. What, was Yeshua taking Greco-Roman tradition and making it his own and giving significance to it, or was uh, did did uh, Judaism already take that and give significance to it, and now Yeshua is taking it and making his own significance on Jewish tradition? That's how I hear his question. There are several things that should first be noted here. Within the Greco-Roman banquets, especially the symposiums, um, and this uh, we have literature of this up to, I think, 400 BCE is where we start to see the Greco-Roman banquets uh, talked about in this way. There were ceremonial cups in the banquet ceremony. And so, for instance, at the beginning of the, uh, of the meal, a cup of wine uh, mixed with water was, uh, was dedicated to the good deity. And then once the Dapnon section of the meal was over and it was going to become the symposium part, the drinking part of the uh, banquet, there was a unmixed 
cup of wine that was uh, uh, dedicated to Zeus. And so um, I actually think that this was not necessarily pagan all around. In other words, I think that this became common banquet tradition in the Greco-Roman world for everyone, not just for the Greco-Romans, but also for the Jews and um, the surrounding people, right? Samaritans, so on and so forth. Um, that's, and I think that we actually see this even in the Last Supper, mm. right? In Luke 22, we see him, he, he has a cup, he breaks the bread, and then it says, and then after supper, and he has another cup, right? And he dedicates another cup. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, uh, our friend Asher writes, and stop me at any time or jump in here. He says, or has it already been incorporated into the first century Seder? This is a very difficult question to answer because we don't think that there was a set Seder. In fact, Seder is probably a later um, invention by Judaism. Were there set prayers? Yeah, they pr- there probably was set prayers, but not they weren't set across all Judaisms. In other words, what Yeshua did at his uh, at his Passover meal um, could have been uh, specific to him. It could have been specific to certain groups in Galilee or whatever. Um, you know, whether or not the Pharisees had the same prayers or the same rituals that Yeshua and the groups like his had, we have no evidence of that. We have no evidence of set prayer at the, uh, at the um, Passover meals until really, until the Christians come along, right? The liturgical scholars will tell you that um, by the time the Gospels are written in the 50s, now we have set tradition of believers. In other words, the believers have now incorporated things that Yeshua said into their Passover meals or whatever, you know, their Easter celebrations is what the Christian scholars would say. So I think, but, okay, hang on, let, let me uh, back up for just a second. There's also Christian scholars who say that there were set prayers and that um, the breaking of bread, uh, for instance, Daub is one who says that the Afikoman was already a set Jewish tradition and that Yeshua just takes that over. Um, I think that basically what, this is my personal opinion. I think what happened was you had Greco-Roman tradition of multiple ceremonial cups. I think that became just cultural tradition that wasn't necessarily religious in nature, but was, um, perhaps cultural in nature. And I think, uh, Yeshua now takes a cultural element that, um, the Greco-Romans probably used it religiously. The Jews probably used it religiously as well. Um, but I think Yeshua takes this, this, uh, structure and he gives the significance to himself. And that is very uh, unorthodox. I think that that is what was so um, different about what Yeshua did at the Last Supper, is that he makes he puts the significance on himself. But I think it was probably more of a Jewish custom at this point, or it was a Jewish custom, and it was also a Greco-Roman custom. Thoughts? Yeah, I think it is... Uh... We know, like, what can we say that we know? We know that ancient Israel was a wine-producing people, right? I mean, they they produced wine. So for them to have a special wine, uh, uh, maybe not ritual, but, but to have some sort of wine uh, culture that becomes 
part of meals, especially right. special meals, is not would not be surprising. So we can think of this, you know, independent of of external uh, larger world. However, wine was something that was uh, shared culture. In other words, people right. ex- sold wine, and that's why. I mean, one thing we know is that the Greek word for wine, oinos, and the the Hebrew word yayin and the Phoenician word yayin is all the same word. So we know that when you have different cultures that have the same word for an artifact or for a uh, some sort of produce, cultural product, that it probably, the, the diffusion of that term across cultures means that they probably shared, you know, they traded and there was some sort of shared wine culture. In appreciating wine. On the other extreme, well, one other data point. We know from the Book of Jubilees, right. which is not Pharisaic, right? It's, uh, um, and it's second century, roughly, second BC. century BC. Right. Yeah, BC. So it's second temple period. We know that wine, drinking wine, was, is an expected part of celebrating Pesach. So we do have that data point. And then what do we have on the other side in Jewish tradition, like we looked at, I think it was last week, we looked in the Jerusalem Talmud, and we noticed rabbis debating the four cups. They took four cups for granted, but they we had different rabbis giving different types of significances. One right. was these are the different uh, statements from Exodus 6, which kind of has the one that wins the day later in tradition. Uh, one, that they're the different kingdoms of the world. One says these are the different cups of the wrath of God. So you could envision a Dapnon, right, with any one of these templates. Like we're going to do a Passover Seder and we're going to talk about these as each cup as the kingdom of the world. And we have scripture, right. like it is in the Jerusalem Talmud. There are scriptures citing that are given to be cited for each, according to each of the four cups. But the, Bab- the Bavli, we looked, and there is no such discussion. That rabbis don't record any of that. They just say, the four cups represent cherut, which is the word for freedom. So we looking at that range, right, just in the Jewish world, and then we look at the influence of the Greco-Roman Dapnon and that other cultures were doing the same thing, multiple cups during a meal with specific theological or other uh, significance specifically marked out as set apart in the telling of a story um, or with a mythology, and like if it was Zeus or something, they ha- they would have had some sort of myth that it's all uh, kind of brought to mind during the meal because they it was a special meal for them. So uh, I think that all these uh, data points over time uh, and cross culturally are important to keep in mind. So uh, G- uh, Gary in the chat room. Um says, uh, and so first of all, we need to, he's right, we need to uh, emphasize that there's no monolithic Judaism here. There's all different kinds of groups, and even within Pharisaic uh, circles, you know, what the Pharisees did over here is not necessarily what the Pharisees did over here. Um, The idea that there was set liturgical prayers in the synagogue, there's no proof of that uh, in the first century. Um, So on and so forth. So, I mean, there's uh, we have to detach our minds from the idea of Judaism as uh, the Judaism that we have today was what was going on then. That's not at all the case. But Gary says this. He says, I sense an underlying insecurity in the body of the Messiah, especially in the Hebrew roots slash messianic part of the family that seeks certainty. What I th- find in this conversation that is uh, 
in these kind of conversations that is, is more likely the case is that people have a, um, a uh, rose-colored glasses on for Judaism. In other words, they think, oh, Judaism is ancient and so it was around when Yeshua, you know, it was around before Yeshua was here. Yeah, like it's a pristine, un, um, unaffected, unmingled. Right, and we see this. Yeah. We see this a lot from people who, you know, oh well, of course the, you know, people say things like, oh, of course the New Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of the people. They didn't, you know, they didn't speak Greek. Greek, you know, Greek was the enemy. Blah. blah, blah. That's totally not true. We know that's not true. We know that most, uh, you know, the rabbis were reading, writing in Greek, um, the or the leaders were they were speaking Greek. The Torah had been uh, translated into Greek. People didn't understand right. a lot of the Hebrew and Aramaic, so on and so forth. And even the Mishnah says that says a a Greek Torah scroll. There's no problem with a Greek Torah scroll. Exactly. And so yeah. the point here well, is is that what I see with with the idea of the Daypnon and even you know. The idea that Yeshua would be uh, uh, continuing on Greco-Roman tradition that had had been had become just cultural tradition is that they is that people, especially Hebrew roots and Messianic, a lot of Hebrew roots and Messianic believers, they don't want anything that could be perceived as pagan uh, to be incorporated into anything that Yeshua is doing. In other words, if, uh, if you look at the Dapnon and the, and the symposium of, you know, before Yeshua is on earth, it's, it's very pagan in the Greco-Roman culture. And so the idea that this was now adopted by Jews, why would Jews, why would the Jews of the, you know, first century and prior, why would they, uh, adopt things that were pagan? Um, certainly they wouldn't do that. Well, that's not the case. The case is that in fact, these became very cultural things and that, you know, um, culture is something that we as believers, even, you know, my culture in America is much different than the culture of a believer, say, in, in Japan or in the Middle East even. Uh, the culture is different, and we have different cultural uh, understandings and, and uh, traditions and these kind of things. Well, um, the Jews of the of the Palestine, you know, Palestine region, uh, Jerusalem, and all these things in the first century, they had adopted a lot of the Greco-Roman culture, and so I think it's offensive to a lot of Messianics and Hebrew roots believers to think that Yeshua was now engaging in something that could be Greco-Roman instead of Jewish. Um, but the evidence is clearly pointing to the fact that these were cultural things that had been picked up by Yeshua. Now, uh, I think Asher's point is fantastic, that certainly the Jew, the Jewish sects of the first century had adopted these cultural things. They didn't adopt them as pagan traditions. In other words, it's not like they all of a sudden were praying to Zeus or something like that because they had adopted these Greco-Roman traditions. No, they took the elements that were not pagan and they reorientated them most likely. At least I would I assume that they reorientated them towards um, uh, towards God and Judaism. We see this in, in the later Mishnah, right? Um, the idea of multiple cups, the idea of leaning, you know, all of a sudden they're putting significance on it that means something to Judaism. Instead of retaining, you know, some kind of pagan uh, meaning for everything. With all that being said, I think that Yeshua is now taking just a structured meal that was common in the culture and probably had religious significance among, you know, different sects of Judaism and maybe even different religious significance among religious sects. And but, now but you're you're not going so far as Daub, though. No, 
Daub is going to Daub's going to take what you're saying and he's going to say, yeah, not only was there an existing common tradition among pious families, but they had this thing called the afikomen, right? Afikomenos, and they had a special bread that they told the story of the coming Messiah with. So, th- and it's a it's a beautiful idea, but I'm I'm a, a minimalist. In other words, <clears throat> I want to see data. The reason why I'm hesitant that way, and people who know me know me, I'm I'm hesitant with that kind of thing, because there are so many sensational things that whip in really quickly when you open the door and it's right. like, you know, show me like, like that's why, like we look back to Jubilees and we can see, okay, Jubilees sets the Akida at right. Uh, it's on the 12th of Nisan where Abraham's told to take Isaac. And then when it says on the third day, he saw the place, it's like, well, 12, 13, 14th, at night, right? I mean, it's it's right. it's all set up, and then we see in the later mish or the mechilta, like we looked at, it's the there's this tradition of the blood of Isaac of the Akidah, which obviously never was shed. That's the other thing here is that this is this is the act of faith that Abraham gave, right? He never actually slaughtered, although there is one little stream in in rabbinic midrash that Isaac was slaughtered, but of course we know that's not from the scripture text. Anyway, all this is, is I want to see the data. I want to see the text and the history. Um, and so, Caleb, sorry, I kind of, I kind of hijacked that, but I wanted to point no, out that you're, you're allowing for a space of a tradition, which I think is good and right. But we, and back to Gary's point now, I don't have the chat room open, but Gary's pointing this out. It's like, look, we, we, we have to accept um, creativity we don't have to um, uh, be worried, you know, <laughs> about about this. Um, but it it does seem that there was some sort of tradition, and I bet it would vary. I bet families that had strong family traditions had different ways of doing it than others, and it was okay. So I have a I I, I haven't researched this. And maybe this is something we can do for next week. But I, it would be really interesting to me to to start to understand when the Seder plate came onto the scene. I, it has to be super late, right? Oh sure, yeah. Maybe that's something well, that for would next be week. The same, well, the same book, that volume five of the liturgical tradition series. I don't have it out anymore. Uh, but Yuval has a second article on Passover in the Middle Ages in that same volume. So, so have a look. And that's his specialty, actually. Yuval's specialty is, is Jewish-Christian polemic in the Middle Ages. And that's his book, uh, Two Nations in Your Womb, I think it's called, referring to Rebecca's, you know, the twins, right? Uh, Jacob and Esau, of course. Right. Um, because in the rabbinic imagination, they, at some point, after the Christianization of Rome, so sometime fourth century, the rabbinic midrashic world starts to imagine the Malchut, which is the the Christian kingdom, as Edom, as Edom, as our older brother. Which is ironic. Why would why would they think of the church as their older brother? Although they're saying he's a, he's uh, has hostile intent and is up to no good, they're still conceding that the whatever they're calling the church is an old, is an older brother. Um, which kind of makes it sound like, yeah, we're responding. Our traditions aren't as old as, as Esau's. But so that's a, 
uh, side note. Some, uh, Helen in the chat room says, uh, isn't it just how each family remembers? Can't it just be open to the best ways of teaching children and new believers yeah. to remember what, it, what he did? I agree. But it's it's important to research and to know what we're doing. In other sure. words, yeah, yeah, in, know in, the story. In yeah. other words, um, a lot of messianics and Hebrew roots uh, believers will fault the church for uh, why are you bringing a tree into your house to celebrate the birth of Christ? Why are you um, celebrating? Uh, you know, why are you uh, having Easter egg hunts and these kind of things? You're not thinking about what these traditions mean. Well. Um, I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with what uh, w- with what's on the uh, Passover table uh, in modern times today, and maybe some of it is just to teach the children. However, um, one thing I've learned about Judaism, things are never quite that easy. In other words, there's always a lot of um, of of reason why something is is uh, done. And the, the thing that we don't want to do is blindly um, uh, carry on tradition that, uh, and I'm not saying that the... the you got to play that clip. The rabbi, he never... <laughs> so, yeah, you, I know, I know. Do you have it? I don't, and the reason why is because, yeah, I have an external hard drive that had to be moved. Anyway, not the point. Okay, anyway. Um, well, maybe that's something we can look at next week. But, the, but, but, there's, the, a, but there's a reason, if, if, there, if someone asks a question, an answer will be created at the right. very, you know, at uh, yeah, the very exactly. least. Yeah, exactly. Because, but the educational element, was it Helen you said? I didn't see. Yeah. I, that's a great point. And this is the another really cool thing, I think, about smaller Pesach gatherings in homes is that it encourages uh, more leaders to dive in and prepare to lead the Seder and to tell the story. Well, and the other um, thing, the other thing that this does is it, it prepares us in knowing more and more about what was actually there. In other words, when we understand, okay, Yeshua had the lamb, he had matzah, and he was celebrating the uh, Sabbaths. Okay, this is what we know. This is what we know about what Yeshua is doing. Now, let's look at the Gospels without the preconceived notions of a modern Seder, and let's see what Yeshua is doing. I think that that helps us study the Bible better. Okay, uh, I hope that everyone has enjoyed this. Uh, make sure to uh, give us a call. You can call us on our comment line, 253-465-3205. You can also send us emails, chag at torahresource.com, chag at torahresource.com. Become a monthly supporter of the Messiah Matters show so you can keep us on the air. You can do that at torahresource.com. And, of course, get the new app from Chava Messianic Radio on your iPhone, Android, or Windows phone. Okay, um, I hope that everyone has a amazing Seder on, um, let's see here, two days, Friday, on Friday evening. And we will be here next week, of course, to uh, talk about Passover and to talk about our Seders and all those kind of things. I hope that your Seder will do one specific thing, that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah, because it's all about the Messiah. <laughs>